0: as we take the last of the living, the five elements that uh, provide the foundation for our lives together, uh, it, um, it focuses in on really a broad definition of what worship means. Now, if I were uh, coming to church for maybe the first time, I, I might think that uh, within this building, uh, that's where God is, and I probably wouldn't be too far off the mark to find out that as people gather in a building like this, God does show up with, uh, uh, w- with the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling the body uh, to be the living temple uh, before his throne, as uh, the choir just sang about. And as we do that, and as God shows up, we have a very intense version of his presence. Uh, but I'd be remiss to try to describe God in this way. What if at the end of the worship service, uh, you were to shake hands, not with the pastor, but with God, and God would say, how did you like the service? Did you think it was good? Did, did, did I keep you too long? Uh, did, was it interesting? What, what if God said, uh, you know, how was the temperature? Was it okay? Uh, are you going to come back next week? And, uh, what if God, uh, is, uh, is, is sending you out the door and he's watching you drive away and he's hoping against hope, uh, sometimes hoping, uh, in hope that you will return again on the next Sunday. And what if God just stayed in this building and our relationship to him through worship was just confined to this building. And could you imagine God coming in the building and, and just being here by himself and maybe playing the organ a little bit while no one's around. And he's, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, walking up and down the halls and kind of just whistling and enjoying the building and thinking that I can't wait to see them again next Sunday. Now that could be a view of God, Uh, certainly buildings. Offer sort of a sacred space in and of their own right. But by design, God has intended for worship to expand way beyond uh, the boundaries of this building and out into His beautiful creation. And as God describes that uh, through a variety of ways in the Bible, we, we, we read especially uh, the words of the psalmist who, um, who, who, who lifts up creation and says that they uh, declare his praise and, uh, and the heavens um, uh, are uh, an admonition to his handiwork. And it's uh, all over the place from God's point of view that worship happens. And I'd like to just look at worship in a little bit greater detail today as, uh, as you're considering it, um, maybe for the, the first time, or maybe you've been doing it a long time and you have to reset it a little bit. And I'd like to just take a story that is in Scripture and allow it to uh, begin to shape our thinking about that. In the book of John, chapter 4, uh, there is um, uh, there's an encounter that Jesus has, and I'm going to summarize it just in brief. But if you have your Bibles with you, please uh, uh, feel free to look at it. I'm going to be exploring chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 30. And if you've ever heard the encounter of the woman at the well, uh, you'll know that that's pretty familiar territory. If not, maybe you'll be surprised to discover how Jesus has made God Real to somebody who otherwise would be deemed an outcast. And I'll just summarize some of the elements of the story real quickly, and then then I'll read our verse. Uh, Jesus was uh, in Judea, and he was going to go to uh, another region of the country. But in order to get there, he would have to go through a place that was deemed, uh, you just don't want to go there. Uh, It's that city or maybe that part of town that as you're traveling across country or to a big city uh, that that you simply want to go around rather than go through. And that region was called Samaria. But somehow God had called Jesus to go through Samaria uh, in order to get to his destination for the purpose of introducing us to a woman who was desperately seeking to fill a a need within her life that she couldn't seem to satisfy anywhere else. And along the way on the the road to uh, Samaria was uh, uh, this encounter that happened at a well. And Jesus and his followers are are trekking to uh, their destination together. And uh, Jesus knows something's coming up and he sends the disciples off to get some groceries. And at the well, he encounters this woman. And she, uh, like himself, are both thirsty. But where uh, things get real interesting is in the culture of the day, if a male was to meet a female and they were alone, uh, that would just be absolutely taboo. Uh, You would not wanna put yourself in a position where something could happen that would jeopardize your reputation or tempt you in some way. And so that was uh, highly regarded as, uh, as not the right thing to do. But yet, nonetheless, this woman and Jesus encounter each other at this well. And Jesus begins a conversation with her. And she is a little bit uh, uncertain about his forwardness. Uh, but engages him uh, anyway, and uh, the discussion centers around the water that is at the well, and she, uh, in conversation, uh, uh, starts uh, chatting about um, about the significance of the well and how uh, important it is to the Samaritans and what it represents uh, in their history. Part of the understanding that Jesus had that, that differed from hers was as a, a, a a Jewish believer from Judea, it was understood that worship was centered in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Samaritans, however, had a little bit different take. They felt marginalized by Jewish people because they had resettled Samaria from being taken captive a long time ago. And they had intermarried a little bit during that time of captivity. And then they came back to the region of Samaria as they did Uh, In feeling alienated, they came up with their own story and their own vision that one day God would establish a temple in Samaria that would uh, be centered on um, the history that surrounded Jacob. And as uh, the two competing views of where God would show up began to unfold, it centered around the idea of water. And Jesus told her that if you are looking for water, I can give you water that is so refreshing that it will quench your thirst in a way that no other water can. And she was a little confused by that. And as the dialogue continued, um, she uh, began to discuss how uh, the time would come when uh, uh, people would worship uh, in her country the way that they had envisioned and the debate centered around this place versus that place. And Jesus, as he sees into her heart that she desires to worship, but she wants to worship on her own terms, but she's still confused, says, "Um, I I, I just got to ask you something about your life. And that is, um, you know, you are seeking... And it seems like uh, your problem, you're having male problems in your life. And she's a little taken aback by by the fact that he made that observation. And then he goes on to really just pinpoint the fact that she's been married five times. And uh, every one of those relationships is broken down. And by this time, she's mortified by the fact that he's so aware of the inner workings of her heart and her mind that she wants to deflect conversation to anything but what is happening inside of her. And just stopping for a minute as we're listening to uh, that encounter, I wonder sometimes if when we come to worship, we are really seeking uh, the things that God wants for our lives, or if we're just trying to satisfy uh, a need to sort of connect with God, but not too closely. And I believe that's sort of how she was. She was looking for God, but she didn't want to get too close to God because that was a scary thing. And Jesus said, um, let's just talk about the God thing for a minute. You think it's going to happen there, and some other people think it's going to happen over here. But the bottom line is, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And as Jesus said these words, she was still somewhat confused, and yet she was drawn into the reality of God's presence right there with her, and a transformation began to happen. Scripture says that, Upon that encounter, she rushed back to her city to tell everyone about Jesus, who was the Messiah, and he had basically summarized everything that was going on in her life, and she just blurted out, and he told me everything that I knew. And there's a lot of details to this story that I won't go into, but the thing that I want to ask is, as we're looking at this story, how is it? How is it that we can um, uh, describe the transformation that occurred in her life and relate to that in our own experience so that we can know God and live for him as she did? And I'd like to look at just four things that, um, that I, I believe I take hold here in this story that can perhaps help a person seeking God to know what worship is truly all about. And the first thing is, worship is a response to what we value most. It's something we do. Some commentators, when they talked about this story, they said, if you can envision the garden where Eve and Adam together are worshiping God and living for him in the garden and doing everything that's pleasing him, up to the moment where they were deceived and they began to follow their own way and their own path. And in that moment, they became disconnected from the true worship of God and they started to worship other things that uh, were lesser than God. And that really is the struggle that you and I have, is we oftentimes elevate something above God and yet, as a result of that, um, we, we lose our way. If you were to take the, the woman at the, in, in the garden, at Eve, and you were to fast forward through time to this broken woman at the well who has basically, life has just sort of played out. She's tried relationships. She's tried everything imaginable to Fill that need within her life. And it seems like time after time after time, her brokenness just continues to increase to the point where relational, she's dissatisfied. Socially, she's marginalized. And uh, at best, uh, she's only loosely connected to the spiritual life of her community. She is basically lost. And she knows she's lost. And she's looking to try to find that one thing that can turn her life around. She's elevated so many things in her life, and each of those things has come to disappoint. And we can do that. Did you know uh, if you look at where you spend your money, your time, your attention the most, and you follow that trail It will lead you ultimately to that one thing that you worship and it could be God. It could be money itself and your entire preoccupation is how can I gain more and more and more wealth where the throne that you wind up at is greed and discontentment. It could just be materialism and our culture has been conditioned to believe that the more we purchase, the more we have, the better we'll feel and only, as we're hoarding things in, in all kinds of places, including um, uh, rental places, we're finding ourselves more and more empty. And at the end of the day, we're just the summation of all the things we've accumulated. It could be relationships. We've gone after one, after another, after another, looking for that right person, only to find that um, in the end, uh, I, I'm just worshiping being in love and having uh uh, one serial relationship after another. And it is anything good or bad or benign that you value the most is ultimately the thing that you find yourself worshiping. We are by design worshiping creatures. We can't help it. If you're, even if you're an atheist, a Christian, or some other religion, we are basically Um, engage with some activity or attending to something that ultimately begins to define who we are. And we do become what we worship. And if you worship the Lord Jesus, the Bible says that more and more you'll be like him. And if you worship other sources, you'll become like those things in the end. Worshiping a lesser God than God produces worshipers who become like that, like like what they worship. And that's really the bottom line with worship. Did you know that one of the things that was probably the most abhorrent thing in the Bible uh, that is described in the Old Testament, that God condemned the most, was idolatry. It was elevating something else that we would attend to, that we would spend uh, money on, and that we would uh, allow all of our time to be preoccupied with. And it was, uh, it was an object that would be fashioned, that would be the source of our dedication. And God was very jealous of that because it was a lesser created thing uh, than he was. And he knew that in the end it would destroy those people that worshipped it. And they would become like that. And those gods that they fashioned led them to all kinds of behavior that in the end destroyed them emotionally, psychologically, and, and even physically. Worshipers who become like what they worship. Um, that's what happens when a lesser God than the God of the Bible is elevated in our hearts. And there's another aspect to that, and that is it, it will always lead to disappointment, and often with shame. I'll just stop for a minute. I had a conversation uh, with a person this week. And they said, I, I love coming to church here because the people here, they love God. And they seem to be very hospitable and they're very kind. And, and hopefully that's been the experience of people here. Uh, and and, and they, they, they feel like I, I, I just have found this, this church. And it's the one place that I've been to, of several places I've tried, that offers me this sense of belonging. And the one problem that they had in their life was, but I can remember several years ago doing some very shameful things because I was living a life that was chasing after things other than God. And now I can't seem to get past that because I want to I get baptized and I want to do those things that honor God. But I just feel like I can't forgive myself for that. And it was the disappointment and the shame of chasing something that never seemed to quite satisfy that, that that was tripping them up from moving forward. And the cool thing about worshiping our God is that a bloodstained cross is a constant reminder that there's grace, that God sees us through that cross and he doesn't see the shame or the guilt anymore, but rather he sees a person who he can redeem, he can reengage with, and he can call them into worshiping and living for them. And it was so cool to talk to this person who who, who needed to hear that and needed to know that God had forgiven them and could find relief from the disappointment and the shame of decisions made in the past of worshiping lesser things. And it was so cool to see that God was already working, and this person had told me how they would spend evenings reading the Bible uh, with their spouse and with their children, night after night after night, and how they've gone through the New Testament two times already in the, in, the last, uh, in the last year, just reading together. And there was something about that experience that had worship written all over it. And it didn't happen in this building. It happened despite this building or even outside this building. And it was the realization that every God that this person had been chasing after always led to disappointment and undoing. And I like what Louis Giglio said about this this, when he wrote in his book, The Air I Breathe, about the idea of worship, which is really a good book on this topic. He said, you only have one life, and you only have one life of worship. You have one brief opportunity in time to declare your allegiance, to unleash your affection, to exalt something or someone above all else. Don't waste your worship on some little God. And he's not talking about going into a place one time a week and worshiping something or someone. Rather, he's describing how our time and our energy and our resources and our attention are dedicated. And the only thing or the only place or the only person that really is worthy of all of those things is our God, and our God who presents himself in the, in the form of our Lord Jesus. And he is by all means a much more greater, much greater, much more satisfying, much more fulfilling. And in the times that we live in that are so turbulent, a much more secure place to be than anywhere else. Maybe one of the reasons why people are so unsettled in the times that we live in is because they've placed their confidence, maybe in a way of life, maybe in the markets, maybe in a job, maybe in something that they thought would go on forever, and it seems to just be crumbling. And I believe that God is allowing a lot of those things to happen. Albeit, they are good things, but in some cases, they have become in the mind's of of people more important than God. And God is showing us that there is no security. There is no source of provision. There is no place that you can go that is safe other than into the arms of God himself, other than the throne of God himself. There is no place that you will find peace, that you will find that contentment, that you will escape fear other than knowing that there is one God who is above it all and greater than it all, than, than it all is, um, I hesitate to show this, but I'm going to show it anyway because it struck me uh, in in the storyline of, um, of 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 the of the superhero genre of um, of how there's battles between superheroes and people that project themselves as being all-powerful and godlike. And uh, this is dramatic, but I'll show it, and hopefully it'll have the positive effect of, of seeing how some gods believe they're great, but in the end, they're just empty. I'll just show this clip. It's only 30 seconds. You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by that. puny god. All right. No f- Hopefully, you heard that. Um, I don't know if you caught all that, but uh, you know that that is from the Avengers. And it is, a, it, is a, it is the anti-hero or the antagonist who said he was the god, Loki, and this was a demonstration that anyone who's, or anything that sets itself to be god other than God will in the end just be rendered powerless and ineffective. And I think that's what God's doing in some ways. He's taking the lesser gods and he's saying they have no power. There is no God, but the God. And he came to us, not through a place, but through a person. And that's Jesus. So true worship begins with a person and not a place. As wonderful as it is to gather in a worship setting like this, with all of the features that it has that are signposts to God, that's all, that's all that it is, though, at the end. It is not God itself. This building is not God but rather this building is a way of showing us and pointing us to the reality of the presence of God. And when Jesus came, he said, there will come a day when we're not going to worship in this place or that place, but rather we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And he was basically saying that worship isn't limited to one location but rather a connection that we constantly have with God not only through Sunday morning but through the course of the whole week and the, the, the cool thing about being a believer is we know that no matter where we go Jesus is there that God promises he will never leave us he'll never forsake us and no matter where we go if we call out to the name of the Lord, the powerful presence of the Lord will be right there. And there are countless promises in Scripture that make us aware of that. And through the course of our day, it is good for us to worship, to declare not only that he is Lord, but taking on this horizontal plane the things that we have to do, the work that we're called to be a part of, the challenges that work presents to us, the relationships that we, we, we have that at times we enjoy, but other times we struggle with. And every facet of our lives, God says, bring me into that, worship me in that, and I will help you through that, and I'll bring blessing to that. It's just God's desire to be with us throughout the whole course of our life cycles, and to make every day and every moment of every day an act of worship, an expression that we're devoted to him, and he's taking pleasure in, in being with us. And it centers in Jesus. And he startled this woman when he said that to her because it was almost like a light bulb went on. And the realization that everything that she had been seeking before, even religiously, Uh, was now finally and fully satisfied in this connection that she had established with Jesus. And she couldn't help but go out and tell the world about it. Here's the last thing about this story, is the question as we're looking at her life, how did God do it? How did he draw her into worship? How does he draw you and I into worship? I believe that they were at that well because she was thirsty and Jesus was thirsty. But I believe even more so that God has wired into you and I a homing device that is, that is designed to be constantly looking for him. And as we are sifting through life to find him, he reveals himself through his word, through other believers, through the church. And the thirst that we have physically is just uh, uh, an analogy of the thirst that we are designed to have without, uh, when God is not fully present in our lives. He creates that thirst that only he can satisfy. And secondly, God draws us as he energizes our lives through one thing, and that is belief. What did Jesus tell her? Believe in me. And I, I have to say that is sort of like the, 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 the intangible, oftentimes understated element that energizes a room and, a, and, and the lives of the people within the room. We can take to this environment understanding. We can take learning. We can have categories for what worship is all about. But if we do not engage a heartfelt belief and trust that God is dynamically involved in the process, that he not only will never leave us or forsake us, but he will also in the process work everything together for good, like he did this, this, this lady at the well who was so bankrupt. And as God does that in our lives, it starts with a belief and a trust. You can go to church your whole life and not really believe that God is a part of your life and part of the equation. And the one thing that Jesus wanted to just really stem from happening was a a bunch of religious activity that was not centered in a believing trust that Jesus was in the center of the whole whole enterprise. And I wonder, does belief energize your faith? Do you walk out of here believing that whatever you're going to face... God's allowed and God will see you through. Or do you walk out of your skeptical and uncertain and doubting and fearful? And if you do, maybe the problem is you need to step back and you need to say, Lord, I do believe. Please help me in my unbelief so that my life can be more fully engaged with the vision that the belief that I have will allow God to do more than we could ask or imagine in circumstances that otherwise might seem hopeless. And here's the last thing as I as I conclude. He sends us out to live for his glory. We hopefully walk out of this place with a rekindled belief, with a fresh vision that Jesus is Lord. And with the new understanding, if we didn't have it before, that as I go, what I do is an expression of worship 24-7 until we meet again. And the woman who was at the well was transformed. She was socially outcast, and now she goes to the middle of her community, and she says, let me tell you and show you the one who told me everything I knew. And did you know when they heard They believed and they invited him to come and he declared all the goodness of God to a people who otherwise were just wandering and groping and looking and seeking. Maybe God is working in your life right now. Maybe there's a thirst that hasn't quite been quenched. And perhaps God is telling you in this moment that what you need, only I can fill. And it starts with a, an admission that I do need you, Lord, to fill that space in my life that I've been jamming up with a lot of other stuff. And I need to get rid of that stuff so that there is room for you to fill me with your presence so that I can live in belief and confident trust that in a chaotic world, I know that my hope is secure in you. And my friends, do you have that in your life? And if you don't, God is constantly inviting you to just allow him to come in and to begin to walk in faith and trust.